there's one thing that you've got to drill into and become master of, and that is data. I firmly believe over the next 10, 20 years, every business on earth is going to become a data business. And data will become the reason why a business succeeds or fails. It's not just with the data that you gather, it's how you analyze it, and it's the speed with which you make use of it to solve problems, either for customers, for yourself, whatever it happens to be. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, experts in influence, people who live behind the curtains in a crazy world of influence, to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now today's episode will be tackling influence from a digital leadership perspective. I I genuinely think this is probably one of the hardest questions out there in the business world at the moment, and it is certainly one that I seem to be having more and more with the companies and people that I work with. And I don't think that there is anyone more qualified to shed some light on this terrain than my next guest. His name is Stephen Sheeler. He is the former Facebook CEO for Australia and New Zealand, a role which saw him guide the company's unprecedented rise from quirky Silicon Valley startup can you believe Facebook was ever referred to as a quirky startup, to media and technology titan. I'll give, you some, I'll give you some facts, some geeky facts. Between 2004 and 2012, Facebook grew to 900 million users globally. Now that sounds like a lot. However, from 2012 to 2017, five years, that 900 million jumped up to 5.1 billion in network size. And that was the period of time where Stephen was in the thick of it. He was working with Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and many other Silicon Valley leaders. His tenure at Facebook saw the Australia and New Zealand business, including Instagram, Messenger, WhatsApp, and Oculus, grow from startup into one of the most successful Facebook markets in the world. Now, why is that? Australia and New Zealand, you know, we certainly don't punch above our weight when it comes to geography or population size. However, it's because Australia was the first country in the world to go 100% mobile for Facebook. 100% mobile. Now, the insights that gives you being at the helm of that ship, the first in the world to figure out digital on a mobile platform around storytelling, attention spans, narratives, um, cut through, are absolutely world class. And he was the first in the world to witness and navigate that. And I would say that's a terrain that we are now all heading into in one way, shape or form. Today, he is the founder of the Digital CEO, Senior Advisor to McKinsey & Company, and his wisdom is in demand from, I have a massive list in front of me, take your pick of Fortune 500 brands. I genuinely believe for all of us, whether you're in the media or not, whether you're in business or not, whether you're a CEO of a large company or not, we're all navigating at a time of absolutely relentless change and unequivocal speed. To put the pace of that change into perspective, it took 40 years for 50 million radios to be purchased, 14 years for 50 million TVs to be sold, and only one year for 50 million Facebook accounts to be created. And if you think that's where the craziness stops, you're wrong because it took four months, four months 
for 50 million WeChat accounts to be set up. So if you're not feeling overwhelmed and confused and with a serious case of whiplash right now, then you are not paying attention. In our conversation, Stephen and I talk about voice-activated technology. We talk about so many things, but voice-activated technology is, is a big one. How the application opportunity is larger than you think it's going to be. Fake news, how we can navigate a world of clickbait to create businesses that are actually able to inspire trust. Curiosity, how the key to navigating disruption lies in asking better questions. It always lies in asking better questions. The new ways of telling stories that have cut through in a world of earned attention. The balance between high-tech and high-touch in navigating automation and AI. And my favorite question, which was, if you had to do it all again and start a company today, what would he start and what culture and focus does he believe he would need in order to be successful? Whether you're a CEO, an entrepreneur or a leader, figuring out the rules in this new digital game or you just want to stay on the cutting edge of what's next through the eyes of someone who literally helped to write the blueprint, there are questions and some answers in here that I know will shine some light. So please sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee and enjoy my chat with the digital CEO himself, Stephen Sheila. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen Sheila. Cool. Good to be here. Good to have you. Good to have you. I'm going to kick off with the way that I would usually kick off the podcast, which is to ask whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert, which as somebody who ran Facebook for the period of time that you ran it, I'm really fascinated in the answer to this one. Yeah. I Years ago, I did the Myers-Briggs test, and I, as I recall, I don't remember my exact results, but you know, I was one of those that was kind of both introverted and extroverted. Did they call that an omnivert yeah, now? Someone omnivert told me the other day. Something, which I didn't understand. Um, I think I, at my core, I think I'm an introvert, to be honest with you. I, th- I was always quite a bookish, uh, academic kind of student when I was younger. But over the years, I've learned that extroversion is better. And I think I've become a learned extrovert. Um, and better in the sense that I think it's more satisfying. It's, I think it's it advances my career and my the impact I have in the world. I think has been more impacted by being extroverted, and and um, I get more energy out of it. I think there's just better energy from being an extrovert. So I think I'm a learned extrovert. If, really if there is cu- such a thing. Curious about that. A learned extrovert. Like, how do you? There's probably people listening who are thinking, "How do you learn to be an extrovert?" You push yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah. You push yourself. So you push yourself into situations that make you uncomfortable, where you need to take. Um, leadership or you need to stand up in front of people and talk or you need to so get to the front so I've always tried to get to the front not because I feel like I have the most to say but but just because I feel like most people don't get to the front so I mean for example you know in um, I'll give you an example at Facebook when whenever Mark would do his weekly updates for the company and if I was in California at at our offices I would always sit in the front row always and I would always tell all my people, I said, whenever you go to anything, always sit in the front row because that's where the energy is. And when you get to the front row, going from the front row to being the one standing on the stage is only a couple of steps, right? And so, whereas if you're sitting way in the back, the the person on the stage seems mile, miles away. And so you get closer. And so even when early in my career, I'd always, I'd always sit in the front. And then you'd think, well, I'm in the front row. It's not that far to be the one standing there. It just makes it easier. I never heard it put that way before. But just, I mean... 
to sit at the front row shows energy and enthusiasm and all those like vital things if you're going to get ahead in anything but I'd never thought it I've never heard it framed in such a way that for you to be able to imagine yourself at the front of the room is yeah, so much shorter the front two, of the room, two three steps the, it's you're not far from the stage right? what an amazing first step to take if yeah. you're not quite ready to get up and, and speak in front of people yet yeah and when I was younger I would sit in the back and then I started to learn wait a minute the energy is all at the front and I can I can start to feed off that energy love that that that's probably one of the best answers to that question that, that i have heard <laughs> so let's just let's jump straight in this conversation is going to move into a thousand different areas so one of the things that i learned in having listened to you is that facebook had 900 million accounts open mm-hmm. please correct me if i'm wrong yep. in 2012 yep. now they had started in 2004 with none got to 900 but which is a journey unto itself yeah. in 2012 but between 2012 and 2017 between all their acquisitions whatsapp instagram they had increased that to 5.1 billion yeah now you were in that journey yeah from 2013 so pretty much that entire 2012 actually 2012 so you were there that entire time yeah so that was sort of my span of my time at 12 to 17 so how did it how did it start like how did you how did you enter into I'm just personally fascinated how did you enter into that world It's you know it's funny you you go through life I'll just preface this by saying you know um you know you have experiences and you don't really realize that what you're going through is people are going to talk about and ask you questions about. I'm just, I find it funny we're sitting here on a podcast talking about my first day at Facebook and it seemed like such a trivial event trivial event at the time you know um, but Facebook has since become this you know, global phenomenon, so people are much more interested in, in even per- my personal journey. And so, so in some sense, my journey is just the journey that everybody has every day, so I don't want to make it seem like it's, it's epic. Um, but on the other hand, um, when you're close to things that are important events in the world, it, uh, and I think Facebook has been an important event in the world, it's, uh, you realize you actually did get some insights and you learned uh, a few things. And you actually, and, and to, to an extent, and I was... But one of the people that built Facebook, as many other people, but I was I was one of them for during that period. And when you f- when I first joined Facebook, your question was how did I kind of get inside, etc. Um, it was a fluke by which I joined Facebook. It was essentially I knew somebody who was there who said, "Hey, they're they're hiring people. Um, would you want to work for Facebook?" And the truth is, I'd never thought twice. I never even considered working for Facebook. It wasn't even on my radar. And I was doing something else completely different. Um, but I started as I started. Two things happened. One is I started to meet some people at Facebook as I started to um, talk about joining the company. And I was really intrigued by the people I met because they weren't like many people I'd met elsewhere. One, they were young. Two, they were super optimistic and forward-looking. Um, and three, they were all really dedicated to a mission that you could see they were just deeply imbued with this mission. And I'd never come across that before. That was just a real unique Type, type of people I was meeting. That was one reason. And then the second reason was, as I started to go a little, it didn't take me long, but I just, I hadn't really thought deeply about Facebook as a, as a phenomenon or a business. But then I started to kind of dig into what Facebook was. And I realized this thing is going to be, even though it was at 900 million, which is a huge number at that point in time, I, I realized that we'd, Facebook had just scratched the surface. And the reason it had just scratched the surface was this power of, connection that Facebook um, leverages and it leverages that and it's not a 
it's not an easy thing to figure out. It took Facebook a number of years to figure out how to leverage it. And in some ways, you're seeing the the kind of over leverage effects of of real of this power today um, through some of the things you're seeing and with with data privacy and security and and uh, Cambridge Analytica and those sorts of those sorts of developments. But I realized at that point in time, this thing is going to be big, and I want to be part of it. And uh, and sure enough, you know, it's proven to be. Uh, but those those early days, that's how I kind of got into Facebook and then started to figure out, you know, what's my role here and how, how can I make a difference. So that's the journey that you thought you were on. So you go in, there's people that you meet that are exciting, there's an energy that you find exciting. There's the journey that you thought you were going to have and then there's the journey that was, you know, there was the, the five years it was. Was that crazy trajectory of a journey that you ended up on, was that what you thought it was going to be in the beginning or was it something totally different? Um, I can say this in truth. Every, almost every day at Facebook was a surprise. Um, we were a business, and we're not the only business, but I think Facebook was unique in its scale um, in that even though it was big, it was still changing really quickly. So even though Facebook, by the time I joined, had built almost a billion users on just one platform, which was Facebook, you know, over the next few years, we started, we bought Instagram, we spun out Messenger, we bought WhatsApp. Facebook itself grew to over 2 billion um, everything that happened with mobile and video and the, the explosion of social media as a, as a key source of information for the whole planet was something that even in 2012 wasn't apparent to those of us inside the business. It started, it was something that the business was building, but we, uh, we would often be surprised by the power of what the Facebook family of apps was achieving. And so, no, it, was, it, was a, it, it wasn't a journey that I could have said, here's the map that's going to follow over five years. Um, and even t today, I think the Facebook map is not clear. Uh, now with the emergence of virtual reality and artificial intelligence and some of the data issues that are arising, you know, what's the future for social media in general, um, I don't think is fully defined. And that's exciting as well as, as a little harrowing, depending on your, your point of view. Um, but I, I, there was no way to, the, the way I would capture it is by saying every day at Facebook was different. I mean, we were, it's a business that's very good at pivoting and, and shifting on a dime. It has been very good at that over time. And we, we built a business and I built my own skills to be very good at pivoting. And, you know, almost to the extent that having a plan, we had plans, but they were, we would throw away our plans almost regularly. We just tear out that plan come up with a new plan and all, all, or have no plan. Let's just, let's just reinvent it every day. And sometimes it was like that. Well, that's the, the Mark Zuckerberg's philosophy, isn't it? Move fast and break things. Or it used to be. I think he's now He's, he's now still moved fast it. and break things, but he's, he added um, back in about 2014 or so, he added something to that, which was um, move fast and build stable infrastructure, which was a bit of a coder's kind of stable infra, which basically meant, no, you, certain things can't break. And, you know, when you're a startup, breaking things can be okay. But once you get lots of customers and users and, and people paying you money who are relying on your platform, it's not a good idea for things to break. So, I have to ask, the first, day you, first time or the first, the first day that you met him, how was that? The first day I met Mark, um, well, there's two, there's two parts to that story. I, actually, I met Mark originally when I first joined the company, but it was, uh, I didn't really meet him. I was in the same room with him. 
Um, so I can't say I met him. Uh, but I really met Mark a few months after I joined, and uh, I did uh, I did something really crazy. Um, I actually auctioned Mark off in this. Uh, it's a it's a long story. It's a bit of a Facebook kind of. Uh, it's become a little Facebook um, lore, sort of. Uh, I, I won't go into the depths of the story, but there was a there was a situation where there was a charity auction, and I actually I actually put Mark Mark up a, a meeting with Mark up as one of the charity auction items, and it went for um, a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars, and it was for a very good cause. I didn't really have. Full Mark's full authority to do it, but so hang on, you auctioned off Mark Zuckerberg without asking Mark without Zuckerberg. Asking. But after the fact, I got in touch with Mark and I said, "Look, I did this, and I gave him the reasons why." And he basically came back and said, "That's great, no problem." Um, he was really happy to support it. So through that process, I wound up meeting Mark uh, and spending quite a, a fair amount of time with him, um, and it was a great. And I met Cheryl much more closely in that time as well. Um, because we wound up going over to the States and bringing the, the folks who had won the, the, the trip to, to Silicon Valley to meet Mark. And um, Mark was super gracious, and, and uh, Cheryl was super gracious. So we spent a couple hours together with, uh, with these folks, and Mark gave us a little tour of his space, and Cheryl took us around as well. So um, I think they probably wouldn't put as much time into that today, but these were in the earlier days of Facebook. And what was your overriding, I'm going to say impression, but feeling from from having met him there's two things you get from mark every time you you're with him so one is he always thinks far ahead of where you're thinking so i've been in situations and i've seen people in situations with mark where they'll start to talk about something and mark already knows what you're going to say it's almost a sixth sense he almost knows you know you don't need to go through the 10 different bullet points. You can just do one, and Mark knows the other nine already. And then he's, already, then he's on to the 25th because he's already thinking a few levels ahead. And that can make him seem a little arrogant, I think, but it's just how his mind works. He's just a really quick problem solver. He doesn't need to – most of us are pretty sluggish problem solvers, which is just the way most people are. Mark's a hyper-fast problem solver, and he realizes that his time and his mind are quite um, uh, valuable commodities, so he tries to apply them to the highest value problems. So if you're in front of Mark with a problem that's not high value, he doesn't have a lot of time for it. And he, does, he doesn't, not to be rude, but he's just like, you know, I'm a limited, you know, I'm a limited resource and I apply myself in the best possible ways. Um, so that said, he can seem a little arrogant because of his intelligence. But on the other hand, what you notice about Mark is he's not arrogant. He's very, he is a very humble man. And I think he's learned a bit of that humility over the past 10 years or so. Um, just as I said before, I kind of learned how to be um, extroverted. I think Mark has learned how to be extroverted and learned how to be humble at the same time. And it's something that I don't think comes natural to his personality. But you can see he tries. And um, so you notice that humility. And I should mention a third thing. I think the third thing you notice about Mark is he really he does care about the world. I mean, this sounds trite, but he really does care about the legacy he, he'll leave behind. He's not interested in – He's. It's, I mean, it's easy when you're a billionaire to say you're not interested in making money, but he's not interested in making money. I really don't think so. He is interested in making a difference in the world. I think by the time Mark finishes his journey, you know, which will be many, many decades from now, I think Facebook will be one of the smaller things he does in his life. 
I honestly do. Really? Oh, yeah. Mark has bigger things to do than Facebook. It, 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 we just don't know what they are yet. No, that'll be something to watch. That'll be something to watch. Well, let's take you back a little bit. You, you have said that Australia is the number one country in the world that has 100% say, penetration of Facebook on mobile. Is mm. that correct? Mm. So why... I want to start there. Why is that? I mean, you wouldn't have thought so. Australia's got this reputation of being kind of sluggish, relaxed, mm. hanging out, mm. yet it's got the number one penetration when it comes to mobile. Not only that, but I heard the other day that Uber had done a survey. I don't mm. know if you heard about this. And found out that Australia is the most impatient nation in the world as well. You know, when you book an Uber and then it's nine minutes, so you cancel it and you rebook it, see if you can That's get a six minutes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So... Why do you believe that Australia, which was the, the region that you were taking care of, led the world there? Because that meant that you would have had insights that no other country on the planet had in terms of how people interact with yeah. their mobile devices. Yeah. I, if you go to Apple or Google or Facebook or Uber in this case, you will find that Australia tends to over-index over or be the number one country in terms of uh, the measures, a lot of the measures that matter to those businesses in terms of product adoption or product usage and these sorts of measures. And I think it's for, so it's not unique to Facebook, um, but I think it's for a couple of reasons that Australia is very um, adoptive of new technologies. So one is um, the, the similarity of Australia to the U.S. Uh, in terms of consumers in this country and U.S. consumers are very connected in terms of, you know, how they think about products and services, how they think about technology. And so things that happen in America are very easily adopted over in Australia. Australia is just very good at adopting um, technology that gets born over in the States. That's one. I think two is just as a country, um, Australians have long been very um, open-minded to new ways of doing things, new technologies, new, um, you know, new business models. It's just a, it's, it's a country of a lot of, um, even though country, in some ways Australia gets knocked down for not being innovative enough, I think Australia is actually very innovative in how it thinks about solving problems on a daily basis. And you see this in terms of the SMB market in this, in this country. You know, there's lots of small businesses that are quite innovative in solving problems at local level. Um, they just don't scale up to being global technology businesses. Um, so that's number two. And number three is, um, you know, Australians like new technology. Australia is a, uh, it's an affluent country that embraces new technologies. So, you know, we can afford... Um, the newest iPhones, and you know we can afford um, the data plans that give us the highest, uh, uh, ultimately the highest speed internet that we can get in this country. It's not as fast in some countries, but it's you know it's getting better. Um, so Australians just you know they buy new stuff and they they try it out. So um, you know, those three things coming together made Australia quite a good market for for Facebook. So you would think you know as a natural extension to that, you would imagine that companies in Australia, CEOs based in Australia would be so far ahead of the game globally when it comes to figuring out how to get their brand, their products, their organization, their infrastructure to interface with mobile technology. Mm. And yet, it reminded me of a, of a conversation you had said you had with a, a media a media mogul yeah. not yeah. so long ago. Do you want to just run through that conversation because it's fascinating? Yeah, so that was a... Um, so before I say that, I would say this, which is... Um, Australian businesses actually are really good at doing a lot of things. 
and any business only is only as good as the game that's in front of them, right? We're all this way, right? It's the game that's in front of you and it's the competition you're up against. So if you're a you know, if you're a sprinter and you're only going up going up against, you know, other sprinters that are good in your state, you'll be as good as the other sprinters in your state. But if you go up against Usain Bolt and the best sprinters in the world, you have to lift your game. And so it's not a criticism of that sprinter, it's just that he hasn't been you know, he or she hasn't been tested against the best in the world. And in some ways, Australia's isolation means you don't get tested against the best in the world, at least in the past. I think that's, that's changing. Um, so that's just one overarching comment. So let me tell you about this media mogul. So when I left Facebook, um, well, when I was at Facebook, Facebook has a love-hate relationship with the rest of the media world. You know, it's probably the, it's an understatement to say it's a love-hate relationship. Um, and so here in Australia, we had uh, various, and I had various relationships with some of the big media companies. Uh, now, since I left Facebook, I have a, a very good relationship with many of the media companies here and their leaders and their CEOs. Um, and the, this one in particular called me, his son called me, who I knew fairly well. Uh, and he said, hey, can you meet with my dad? So we caught up, this was a couple months after I left Facebook, and we had lunch. And he was asking me a lot of questions about, you know, uh, the what was happening in media and what I thought was, was some of the trends that they should be aware of. And, you know, if I was running his business, what would I think about doing differently? And just to interrupt you, the, the, the landscape behind these questions was it was at a time when I think it was Network 10. Yeah, early last year. We're, we're losing yeah. billions of dollars. Yeah. So the concern was fairly high. Well, Channel 10 was in receivership and um, has since been brought out of receivership and bought by CBS. But um, you, you had some very astute... Um, uh, billionaires and very uh, successful business people put a lot of money into Channel 10 back around 2012, 2013. I think about a billion dollars. And that money was all toasted. Um, and so that was kind of in the background when I was talking to this media mogul last year. And he, um, at one point, I pulled out my phone and I was showing him something on Facebook. And he just said to me, uh, you know, I've never looked at Facebook on a mobile phone. And this kind of blew my mind. Um, and he had, I also, I'd asked him another question during the course of the conversation. I said, you know, if I, if I came to you just three years ago, would Facebook have been in your top 10 competitors? And he said, you wouldn't have been in my top 20. It's just three years earlier. We, yet at this time we were talking, it was Facebook, Netflix, and Google were essentially his three biggest problems in addition to his con, uh, existing competitors. Um, and so we, were, we were one of his biggest problems, yet he hadn't bothered to you know, look at Facebook on a mobile phone. And, you know, 13 million Australians do that every day. 13 million. And yet he can't be one of the 13 million, right? I mean, 2 billion people on earth have managed to download Facebook onto their phone, essentially, but he hadn't figured it out. And I did have to say, I said to him at the time, I said, I've lost a lot of sympathy for you because you've lost your curiosity. You, there's no excuse. There is no excuse. You can't rely on other people in your business to come and tell you what is Facebook when 2 billion people can put it on their phone and have a look at themselves. Well, some of the some of the stats that I have at my fingertips from research, and again, tell me if these feel right to you. So 93% of all buying decisions are now influenced at some stage via social media. Your average person spends 8.5 hours a day consuming content via a digital platform, social media being predominantly. The new generation's 10.6. Mm. I don't know when anyone's sleeping, but mm. apparently 10.6 hours. Of which you have said Facebook and Instagram are one in every three minutes. On mobile. On mobile. Yeah. So this is terrible maths. That means that approximately 30% of buying decisions are now influenced 
via Facebook and yeah, Instagram. Yeah, that's one way to, to look at it. It's probably, that's, that's one way to look at it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's yeah. certainly not something that you'd put a bar graph towards. But it's a, a way of saying that that's an incredible percentage that is being influenced by two channels. Mm. And certain CEOs, and we've all been there, have kind of either dismissed it or lost curiosity amongst the thousand other fires that we all know that mm. we put out every mm. single day. What, what is it... What is it that they should have been looking for? So rather than, you know, going down the outrage route, what is what it? What should they have done? What, yeah. what, what were the clues? What yeah. was missed? What should they have been looking for? What should have been on their radar? Well, the, the clue about, about social media and Facebook should have been the same thing I saw when, I, when, when Facebook first approached me about joining, which was, one, the scale of the platform already by 2012, and let's just say 2012 as a, as a marker, was already almost a billion people on the platform. And then two was the, face, the fact that Facebook had unique, has something called unique identity. So Facebook knows, this is part of the challenge of, that Facebook's going through, but Facebook knows who you are. And that sounds trivial, but we're all seeing now how powerful it is. And inside Facebook, we always knew this, and I knew it even before I joined Facebook. When I saw that, I said, 900 million people, and you know who they are? This is the most powerful advertising platform in the history of the world. This is it. This is the holy grail every advertiser has ever dreamt of. And yet, if you went over to a, you know, a news organization or a newspaper at that point in time, they would be like, "No, you know, we've got this. Everything's we've got, we we don't we don't have any idea who's looking at our content, um, but we're fine." And so, I realized at that time, well, the traditional media is not fine. Um, it's going to have a lot of problems in a world where you have a a, a platform of such scale with that the specificity of data, knowing who people are. TV simply cannot replicate that. Um, it's impossible, and print can't replicate it. Now, print and TV have been very successful for a long time. Great businesses, terrific people running them, but unfortunately, that model, which is anonymized, I don't know who I'm talking to, is starting to fade away because it's being replaced by these models where you know exactly who you're talking to, and Facebook is the leading kind of progenitor of that, but there's others as well, and it's all in the digital world. And so if I was that uh, media billionaire, I would have figured that out back in 2012 or earlier and started to say, what are the investments and moves I need to make to either counter this or take advantage of it? And yet they didn't do any of that. I mean, even when I was sitting with him, I'll give you an example. Um, I shouldn't say they didn't do any. They have made investments in digital, um, but I've... I've always thought they were not aggressive enough, and we saw it at Facebook. But I just gave an example when I was talking to him last year, and I said, look, if you look at the top 100 channels on YouTube, let's just take YouTube for a minute, and, you, and these are in terms of you know, monthly views. This was at the time we were talking. It may have changed a bit since, but it took the top 100. 20 of them were about kids and toys, 20. The number one, in fact, I think it was the third or fourth largest channel on YouTube globally, was, is, was a show called... A, a channel called Ryan's Toys Reviews. And Ryan's parents at that time were making about $10 million a week. A week. Well, back up. Hang on. So Ryan firstly has parents. So how old is Ryan? At that time was four. Ryan is four. Yeah. And his parents were making $10 million a week on ads to support and sponsorship to support Ryan's Toy Review. Now, I said to this media mogul, where's your toy show? On Free Air TV. Didn't have one. He'd never heard of Ryan. He didn't know the toys. I, and I said, if, if, if this was only one of the top 100 channels on YouTube, you could say it was a fluke. There's 19 others 
of the top 100. It's not a fluke, it's a trend. But you aren't on this trend. You aren't saying, how do I build content on my free-to-air platforms and then I can move it and monetize it globally on digital platforms. We'd see it in his, um, his uh, reality TV shows. Like, so let's just take cooking shows. And we saw this when I was at Facebook. It used to always frust- frustrate me. They build the funnel of talent to, tr- to go and they look at thousands of people. They get it down to a few hundred, then to a few dozen. They put those people on TV. Then they chuck people off. They get down to the one person or two people that win. Every time they throw somebody off, they basically are gone from monetization and f- by, that, by, by the TV network or the producer of the show. We would sit there on Facebook and say, these people you're throwing off the show have, some of them would have hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. But that was completely ignored by the TV network. They just said, that, that person's off our show, done. And to me, it was like, you're not making any, you're probably taking some, some diamonds here who actually probably are worth more to you on, on social channels and on digital than they are on free to air, and you're just throwing them away. It's like you're cutting up the meat and you're just shoving the, the best cuts on the floor and having the dogs eat them. And, and this, is, this is the way of thinking about the world that I think that they weren't doing. And unfortunately, a lot of this game is now played out. You know, there's, there have been businesses now built, global businesses that are built around mobile digital, global mobile digital um, video. And, you know, they haven't built that. And so they could play catch up. It's possible. But I think a lot of their focus was too much on just the existing platforms that they already ran and they had invested in, mainly free-to-air TV for, for this particular player. Um, and they thought only about one geography, which was Australia. And right now, if you're in media, as you'll know, you're in a global market. You cannot just think about your own country. So who do you need? I haven't actually written this question down, but it's just occurred to me. As a CEO, who do you need on your team? Because you can't do all of this alone. Like you said, even with Mark Zuckerberg, he's he's 25 questions ahead. And most CEOs have to play that game where you are both 25 questions ahead, plus on the burning platform that's happening right now, plus everything else that's on your plate. So who do you need? Who do you need on your team to make sure that you're staying ahead or at least staying up with the trends that are, that are yeah. moving that fast? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not um, – I'll answer it in two ways. One is I think you need to retool yourself. I think all leaders who are not born digital natives today – and there are many young digital native leaders who probably don't need this pep talk or this advice. But for those of anybody over 35, you, we didn't grow up with digital – uh, in our blood. And so it's harder for us to get our heads around what all this means. And we, and, and we may not even live in that media world, but just taking media as an example. And so for, for those folks, so those leaders and managers over 35, it's a matter of retooling themselves. And, I, and CEOs should be included. So this is around, you know, reigniting your curiosity, um, understanding, creating a, um, a customer obsession that it goes beyond just your customer centricity that you know has been the buzzword for the past 10 years you know the obsession that Amazon or Facebook or Google take with with users basing that on data and becoming dexterous around using data in a way that um, you you were never taught to do when you were in the early part of your career well the data wasn't available correct um, and it's also about vision it's about the vision of what you're trying to build and 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 expanding that vision uh, to to take into account the, the boundaries that are being broken down around your industry, largely by technology or global platforms that are now being built and so accessible to everyone. So it's a combination of these things. And, and what I, when I talk to a lot of leaders and CEOs, one of the things I say to them is, 
you have a natural advantage in this space, which is you have years of experience, knowledge, and expertise. But what you've lost is your is your adaptability and your curiosity. So we need to reignite those. And then we need to couple those with speed. Because many of us, and I would include myself in this, we grew up in business structures and processes that were built for the 19th century. They weren't built for the speed with which business moves today. And so, you know, we're used to monthly board meetings and quarterly reporting and weekly updates. And, and I can tell you most of the most disruptive businesses on earth don't operate that way, right? They, th they think in much more fluid, much more day-to-day, -day, much more hour-to-hour -hour ways about how, how they build their business. And this is the, ad, you know, it's manifests itself in one respect as agile, right? This is sort of the buzzword. Um, but forget about agile for a minute. To me, it's all just about speed. You just have to do things faster. And many CEOs ask me the question, or boards, they say, what's the one thing we should do differently? Right? What's one thing? And I have the same answer for everyone. Get faster. Just get faster. And so they kind of look at the, they think, oh, what does that mean? I said, well, just take a mid-level decision you might make. Any manager can do this, a CEO, a board, a manager. Not the most important decision, not the little decision, but every leader has to make decisions every day. Take a mid-level decision, right, that's kind of important, but it's not a, not a, a company betting decision. And say, okay, and take a piece of paper out and write down how long it takes you to make that decision from when you realize you need to make it to gathering the data to figure it out to analyzing the data to coming up with a series of choices or options to coming up with the one or two that you'd say are the leading ones, then analyzing that, then getting people to agree, then getting it funded, then starting to do something, then doing it, then measuring what you've done, then, then finally getting to results. Lay all that out. And my challenge to every business is, well, now take and cut that in half and then cut it in half again because that's the reality of the new sort of digital 21st century that we live in. You need to start cutting that out. And when you actually go through that exercise, you start to realize, hey, you know, we had a one-hour meeting where we could have sufficed with a 30-minute meeting. We had six people in this meeting when we could, could have actually gotten by with three at that point in time. This person was involved or this function was involved at this point and they don't need to be. We could have pulled them out and put them in somewhere else. Um, we tried to build this big, you know, uh, investment level um, business case and what we realized is actually we could have just broken it up into smaller pieces and proven different things out along the way and, and reiterated, A-B tested and learned. We didn't have to build this big thing and then get all that approved. When you start to think about it that way, that is, that's what Agile is. It's just breaking down those processes. And then you can move a lot faster. And when you can move faster, speed is such a powerful tool that businesses have in their arsenal. Most businesses don't realize how powerful speed can be. Because if you can cut that in half and cut it in half again, and your competitors are still moving at the same old slow speed, guess what? You have a huge advantage in the marketplace. And secondly, you have an advantage with customers and consumers as well, because then you start to build the you build the equity around you know getting features to market faster, getting products to market faster, responding to customers faster, because everybody speed matters to everybody. It's a it's part of the friction we need to remove. So speed is the big thing that every business needs to start to figure out. But there's that there's that offset, isn't there, between um, between speed and between quality the offset has been and where i'm kind of going this with this is storytelling i want to move into the world of storytelling it's a world that i know and i, I know that you would know very well with facebook because a facebook is essentially 
a storytelling tool if you want to get really kind of mm. macro with it. What is it? Because you can get quick and fast up on Facebook, you know, quick with an iPhone, mm. a CEO or a, or a member of your team, quick with an iPhone, a quick video, mm. pop it up. Or you can get high production, lots of time, planning amazing advertising campaigns, getting them beautiful, getting them perfect. Some are 30 seconds long to 60 seconds long. And again, that's a speed question. Mm. So it's a speed question, but it's also a cut-through question. Mm. So what is it that your tenure at Facebook, what did it teach you about storytelling, the most effective forms of storytelling? Mm. Um, it's an important question. And I would, I would, at a higher level, I would capture it this way. I think we are now into an era where there's, there's always been two battles going on in business, right? But they've largely been in separate arenas. And one is the battle for human commerce, which is basically getting people to buy products and services from you. And the other is the battle for human attention. Traditionally, the human attention battle was fought by media companies who would then aggregate that attention and then sell access to it to the, to the ones fighting for human commerce, right? So a TV network sells ads to Procter & Gamble, but a TV network, TV network fights for attention and then Procter & Gamble fights for commerce. The world we're entering now, and social media is part of what's driving it, um, but it's also other digital tools and platforms, is these two battles are now joining. So it's a battle for commerce and attention that's being fought by every brand in the world. Some brands don't realize this yet, or, and certainly most brands haven't been able to make the pivot to doing fighting both battles at the same time. Uh, but it, the likes of Facebook, Google, Amazon have realized this already, and that's where they are fighting. So that changes your paradigm about how you would tell stories as a, let's just say, as a brand. Um, the old way of telling stories as a brand were ads, right? Advertising campaigns and the and the the cadence that sits around advertising campaigns. You know the old television commercials where you know you you kind of come up with a, you know you've got a, a brand positioning that you work out. You got a product need. You got to you do a little analysis and segmentation of customers at a very high level. Uh, you then might try to boil that down into a, one or two messages that fit under a brand umbrella. Then you go into you know, the whole production of that in different, from different mass media channels, largely built uh, for big brands around TV commercials. That's the, you know, that's the lighthouse. And then everything else just kind of falls off the back of the TV commercials. And a TV commercial is 30 seconds, and it's going to tell a story in 30 seconds, right? And usually it's like there's a problem, the problem gets resolved, and the brand is the hero. That's the formula. That formula does not work anymore. And it's, it's a formula, and it particularly doesn't work in digital channels, right? Because you don't have 30 seconds. You, there's no point in talking to everybody with the same story because now, particularly on Facebook and Instagram, you have data that gets down to individual levels. So you can literally create thousands of different stories for different people. So why do you even need a brand, in a sense? What, what's the purpose of a brand as a communication tool. I'm going to stop you because I had heard you say, and I'm just looking here, I heard you say that a brand was a faceless personality to a faceless group of consumers. That was kind of the definition of a brand, which is which sounds really harsh, but is, is factually true. You know, a brand is a way of putting a personality to a group of people in order to talk to another group of people and none of those people be known. Whereas now, as you say, now we know. We know exactly who who we're talking mm. to at any given mm. platform and any, where well, you can, you have access to that data. Mm. 
So what do, what is a brand now? This, I think, is the big question for for consumer products and retail over the next 10 years that they need to grapple with. So step back. A brand, brands were created in the 19th century. Brands didn't exist before the advents of mass media and mass distribution. There was no point, right, because it was local business. So if you wanted to buy a product, you bought it from somebody who made it locally. And they only sold it locally to people that they knew face-to-face. So there was... So the brand was the person's reputation who owned the shop or ran the store or made the product. That was it. The idea of a brand was created when we two things happen. Railroads happens and being able to get be able to be able to ship products long distance at cheap prices in order in, from a factory to lots of retailers, lots of points of distribution and sale where you didn't know who was selling the product. You had no idea, you know, um, it was just somebody in a store that was employed by that whoever owned the store. And then at the, at the same time, you got mass media, which was largely print in the early days. So both these things happened at the same time. And so it led to a need for products to have some sort of recognizable identity. Um, you would have a factory, in, say, in the U.S., in Chicago that was producing soap, soap powder that was going to be distributed across, you know, thousands of distribution points across the U.S. because it's carried by railroad to those those shops. It needs a brand. And people pick up a newspaper and read, and then the, the, and there's ads going in there. Well, that those ads need to be the same ads for everybody. You can't create thousands of brands. It wasn't scalable. So that led to the creation of the first brands. And some of them still exist today, like Coca-Cola is one of the oldest brands in the world. But that world's now going away. So... And it's going away through, through a few forces. So one is this rise of non-ad-supported media. Um, Netflix, Amazon Prime, YouTube Red, these are all, they all have one thing in common. There's no ads. Pe- people, particularly more affluent people, which are the ones that most brands want to reach, are opting out of ad-supported media by paying a subscription. I'm happy to, I'm happy to be out. And think about your own experience. You know, if you're a Netflix junkie, as most of us, most of us, I was in a room the other day, and I just randomly asked how many people are Netflix Netflix subscribers. Every hand went up. It just blew my mind. But if you if you're used to binge watching on Netflix, how do you feel when you go back to free to air TV and an ad interrupts your journey? It's it's almost unbearable. And so we're getting in this world where now you, so many consumers are opting out of that the old world of you know, television commercial supported media. That's one. Or they're spending time in feeds like Facebook and Instagram or Snapchat. Um, and feeds are harder to reach people with the traditional branded messaging strategy. Um, or the younger consumers are spending th- time doing things like gaming and others. So, they're, so they're, they're sitting outside of the traditional mass media channels completely. So they, you can't reach them with an ad even if you wanted to or traditional ad. The second thing that's going on, particularly in the U.S. with the rise of Amazon Prime, is home delivery. So home delivery becomes a very powerful disruptor of the brand story because no longer are many consumers walking into a store. So they, they are not exposed to your brand messages in store either, which are packaging and uh, point of sale displays, et cetera. So that's gone. And then the final thing, the, the challenge for brands is going to be voice. So as voice ri- rises as a, a gateway to the Internet, and many numbers are showing that within the next few years, up to 30, 40, 50% of all searches in developed markets will be originate through voice, not through other interfaces. 
Um, their brands have a huge problem as well because there's no visual elements. It's controlled by third parties like Amazon and Google. And you have you say, well, what's the, how do I get a brand message in front of anybody? Um, and home delivery means I don't walk into the store. So you, you wind up in a world where it used to be Coke tells the same message to everybody in the world. Coke makes you feel young. You know, that's the message of Coke. It has been for 100 years. Now in this new world, one, Coke can't tell that message to a huge swath of the population. But two is, why does it need to tell the same message to everybody? Because everybody lives in their own media silo. You could actually create separate messaging, separate products, separate, even separate flavor for everybody on earth, in, theoretically. Because the, there are no constraints. There's very few constraints on manufacturing anymore. So I use the analogy of uh, potato chips. You go into the supermarket, how many brand, how many flavors of Red Rock potato chip are there? There's like six, right? That's it. Why only six? There's two reasons. There's two constraints. One is the media constraint, mass media. You can't support millions, thousands of flavors uh, in mass media. And two is you're only going to get so many shelves, slots on the shelf. But imagine now in the world of where consumers are not consuming mass media, they're getting their product home delivered. Why then do you only need six flavors? You could have hundreds of flavors. There's no constraint at the factory. It's just seasoning that gets, you know, it's just different seasoning that gets added to the, to the to potato chips and the packaging. It's just, you, you can create hundreds of different types of uh, packages, labels. It's easy. You put them on trucks, you, get, you send them to people's homes. Um, so in theory, it could have 10 houses in the street. Every house could have a different flavor of potato chip. Every house could have a different brand of potato chip because they're not sitting in the same mass media channels anymore. You could then take that one step further even and go down the road of personalization, which is what's to stop every individual not creating their own flavor. Correct. And you've started to chip. see this happen as well. Uh, I, I'll give an example. Here in Australia, Domino's Pizza has created something called uh, Pizza Mogul, which, uh, which I thought was very clever. Uh, and they came to us at Facebook to help us, uh, ask us to help them build this. But I, I give all the credit to Domino's for really driving it. And Pizza Mogul allows... Um, Domino's Pizza customers to create their own flavor profile, their own pizza, use social media to promote and sell that pizza to their friends, and then gives a cut of that. Domino's gives a cut to the person who created the pizza. So you actually have pizza moguls now, and these can be 18-year-old kids who are making thousands of dollars a month um, enabling pizzas to be sold under the Domino's name but with their design. So there's all kinds of ways you can reimagine both how you create products, how you create brands, um, how you get products to um, and, and services to individuals, and it's all founded on the data and the individualization individualization that um, that digital platforms create. So let's take this back to brass tacks for a second. You're about to start because there's only so much that any of us can do, and although you know you own a a large organization, you have many resources at your disposal. You've, you've got to be pretty forensic about where you put those resources. So you're starting a company. This is going to be one of those questions I haven't, I don't think I've forewarned you about. You're starting your own company. I'm used to these questions. Yeah. That's okay. Let's call it a real estate company <laughs> on the top of yeah. my head. What would you do? In your first year, first two years, you were going to be a disruptive force to the industry. You were going to cut through. Yeah. So first, um, first I would def- before I answer that question, I would define disruptive because this is, this is my definition of disruptive, it's, and it's pretty simple. It's really fast and really powerful, those two things. 
it actually has nothing to do with technology uh, at the highest level. It's about being really fast and really powerful. That is what disrupts things. When you move faster than the normal pace of an industry, significantly faster, and when you can bring power to that, impact, scale. Um, being fast without power doesn't matter. Being powerful without scale doesn't matter as much. But if you can put the two together, that is disruptive. So if you wanted to build a disruptive business, let's say it's real estate, or it could be anything else, over the next few years, I think there's, there's one thing that you've got to really drill into and become master of, and that is data. I firmly believe over the next you know, 10, 20 years, every business on earth is going to become a data business. And uh, data will become the reason why a business succeeds or fails. And so it's not just with the data that you gather, it's, what, it's, the, it's how you analyze it, and it's the speed with which you make use of it to solve problems, either for customers, for yourself, um, you know, in your supply chain, in your manufacturing, whatever it happens to be. There's a lot of businesses today that are built on, and they can be in real estate or others, that are built on the old ways of data. And we all, I mean, data is not a new thing in one sense, is that even 100 years ago when somebody walks into your store, if you're running a store, you're collecting data as soon as they walk in the store. You're looking at them. You're seeing, you know, you're checking out how they're, how they are tired. Um, you know, do they look happy? Are they engaging with you? Um, do they have children with them? You know, you you start to work through, and then you start to ask some questions. They might ask for a product. You might say, well, you know, actually, maybe this would serve serve your 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 interests better. So our brains are always collecting data. They always have been. But now, of course, we have bigger brains even than our brains, which are called computers that can crunch data. But becoming the master of this data is going to be the key to your your real estate company or, or any other business. And I see this time and again today. Um, there's businesses that figure out the data and then are scaling really quickly. I, I just give, I'll give you a small example, which I think is just a great one. Um, there were two, um, two young men who were studying up on the Gold Coast in university. They got a little bored with their course. They dropped out. Uh, sitting over dinner or lunch one day, they were just you know, chewing the fat about, you know, different businesses, things they could do. And they were, they were just tradition, they're just normal millennials in social media every day. And they, they, they kind of, they, they, they alighted on something, which was that having white teeth is really important for selfies on social media, right? Like, and I hadn't we, thought about it that way, but yes. Yeah, white teeth is really important. So they said, well, let's, it is important. What, what about tooth whitening products? So they quickly on their phones, they looked for a tooth whitener and they discovered it's hard to buy. It's not packaged well for millennials. It's not branded for millennials. You can't get it online very easily. You've got to go into, you know, the back, the back of some chemist to buy it. So they realized the tooth whitening business industry was not set up to sell to millennials who are posting every day millions of photos, selfies on Instagram and Facebook and other channels. So they just they went away. They got their manufacturing sorted out. They created their brand. They built it all on social media. They got a few influencers on Instagram who have nice white teeth to be, and they paid money for this to be able to promote their product and use their products uh, in their social channels. They've now, in just about two and a half years, they've passed $100 million in sales. And these two guys, I think BRW said they're worth $46 million between them. They're just 25 years old. So what's the point? The point is the data. They... And this is not a deep data analytical business today. It's getting more that way. But they, they recognized the data, which was the data was there's no product to serve this need. And they recognized this, that, that this need existed in the world of social media. And I talked to a lot of businesses about this. I just spoke at a, 
an Australian Fashion Council event the other day, which was uh, co-hosted by McKinsey. And there were some amazing um, Australian uh, designers and brands there. Uh, but one of the things I challenged them on was um, you could invert the whole way you do your business. A lot of them are, they, they have a brand, they have a product, they have something they're passionate about and that they want to take that to the world as a product. I said, well, part of what you could do is say, forget about what we make and sell today. Let's look at, let's look at the data in the world of digital and social media and where do we see opportunities? Where do we see unmet needs? Where do we see the equivalent of the white teeth for selfies? And let's build a product, let's, let's build a brand or a product or a line of products for that need. And you, and you could wind up building something you hadn't even thought of before. Just as these two guys, when they ducked out of university, they didn't dream about becoming tooth whitening uh, moguls. But they said, there's an opportunity. Let's build that. And I think and that's the way many businesses are going to be built. They're going to be built on the data. Just reminded me, I was listening to the radio yesterday. And there's a, a bra company who have released, it's a, it's a random story, but it speaks to what you're talking about there. They have released a form of lilo the inflatable the inflatable thing you lie on on a pool for big chested women mm-hmm. now you know not being one of those women i had never thought this was a problem however apparently for a lot of women out there lying on a lilo is a problem mm-hmm. and so they've created this lilo that has two indentations in it so you can lie on it comfortably sounds crazy they released this product and it's gone gangbusters it's gone viral it's gone all the way around mm-hmm. the world apparently that was an issue that everybody was facing and it came from listening. They were interviewing the CEO and it came from listening. A whole new product classification. Yeah, and now I don't know if that's an easy segment to target on Facebook. I'm afraid I've never got to that level of detail, (laughs) but uh, I'm sure they're they're leveraging social media uh, very strongly to to sell their product. But that just shows an example of, at least in consumer products now, you know, what formerly used to be a very small or almost unaccessible niche, like in that example, through, through digital and social channels, you can reach now millions of people around the world who, ex- who have exactly that need. And whereas formerly you could never even, you didn't even know where those people were, there's no way to reach them, let alone get them the product. And so that opens up, you know, tooth whitening or the lilo or, um, uh, you know, other businesses. I've, there's another one in Queensland, it's called Cool Cabanas. And this was a a gentleman who just started it in his garage, he wanted to make little uh, sunshade cabanas for um, your kids at the beach, right? And, and Australia is a very sunny country. You need to protect your kids from the sun. And if, at first he went and he approached Target and Kmart about selling his cabanas through their channels. And that was a logical place to go because they're the biggest, probably the biggest retailers for this in Australia. But then he realized that actually that was not the place to go. He realized that if you went to Facebook and Instagram and, and other digital channels, he could they have enough data that you can, you can target ads to people with families, families with kids who live within uh, five kilometers of a beach in a hot part of the world and only target those people, not tar- target anybody else. So now he's built a global business that targets literally h- hundreds and hundreds of beach communities around the world with his product. That was never possible before. He'd still be trying to sell through Kmart and Target, whereas now he's selling directly to the consumers around the world who need his product. When I was thinking about this interview yesterday, I'm just going to move into a different area now, but still linked. When I was thinking about it, I was thinking, well, one of the biggest issues that I see facing organizations at the moment and one of the biggest questions that CEOs are facing is you used to, as you have alluded to, you used to be able to out-interrupt 
everybody else. You used to be able to outshout everybody else and you used to be able to outspend everybody else. And every marketing strategy that we know of usually employs one of those three strategies, outshout, outspend, or outinterrupt. Now, as you have said, none of those things work anymore. And the big question is what works. And as you were saying, data is a part of that. You know, story is a part of that. Storytelling is a part of that. Redefining mm. what a brand is is a part of that. But all those things aside, when you were when you were running Facebook, mm. it suddenly occurred to me that you didn't have, I wouldn't have imagined that you had those questions to answer because you you had the attention and you mm. you had all the customers. You had every single thing that most CEOs are, are are grappling for at the mm. moment. Mm. So, so what kept you awake at night? What were the problems you were trying to solve? Because they're the next generation problems, I would imagine. Yeah, great question. Um, at, you know, it, it's interesting at Facebook. I can remember the day Facebook hired its first um, head of marketing for Facebook. And almost a couple, we kind of joked, a couple of us was like, well, he's got the easiest job in the world, right? Like brand recognition, how do you get higher than 100%? You know, everybody knows who Facebook is. But um, the truth is, our, you know, our joking um, was quickly, um, you, know, proven, uh, you know, proven irrelevant because, um, you know, Facebook has, uh, as a brand, faced a lot of challenges over the past year. No, there's no question, you know, it created this ubiquitous kind of worldwide brand that had a lot of, I think a lot of good vibes around it, but you can see now, you know, as brands get bigger, they face challenges. There's no question over the past uh, 12, 18 months, Facebook's faced a lot of challenges about how its brand's positioned. Um, so there is, to my successor at Facebook and other six, uh, people running Facebook, they are very uh, concerned and they spend a lot of time at night worried about the future of the Facebook brand and, and how it gets positioned. Um, but during my time there, it was a little more of a, you know, kind of the, kind of halcyon days of, you know, when Facebook kind of could do no wrong. Um, and so what we worried about in those days was probably two, probably two big things. So one was being able to continue to serve our users, our people who use our, our products and services really well. Like that was a constant obsession of Facebook, which is, you know, are we doing, are we giving them the best experiences and are we, um, you're respecting their uh, their time and trust in us as a platform. It, Facebook and every person in Facebook takes that really very seriously, that responsibility. And the second thing was, um, how do we continue to grow but still preserve the culture that m many people from Markdown in Facebook think is so important to the success and to the future of the business and make sure that that culture is not... Um, you know, diluted or kind of destroyed by by scale and by size. You know, it, when you work at Facebook, this is a kind of a bit simplistic, but, you know, Facebook will often point at Google and go, we don't want to be like Google because Google was seen as only big and kind of, you know, bureaucratic. And if you go over to Google, they'll say, we don't want to be like Microsoft because Microsoft was seen as being big and bureaucratic. And, you know, each one of those businesses is older than the other. And Microsoft, I'm old enough to remember when Microsoft was the young, nimble startup and Bill Gates was the, 25-year-old wonderkind, right? Pinup boy. Yeah, pinup boy. So uh, now Microsoft is, it went through a bit of a, you know, seen as a darker period. Now it's kind of come back into the light a bit. Uh, but Microsoft's a big company now, and it's, you know, it's it, the, you know, the, the startup days are long, long gone. Google's a big company. The startup days are long, long gone. Facebook is still in a, 
when I was there, was still in a startup uh, phase, but we were we were going through that transition to a more mature business. And you need to go through that transition. There's no holding it back. There's no stopping. You know, as you grow, you need to hire more people. Things get more complicated. You have bigger responsibilities. More people expect more things of you. Uh, you know, in the case of Mark, uh, you know, it's it's the U.S. government, and the Congress, and presidents, and they think they expect things of them. That's a whole new world that you start to get into. Um, so we were we were concerned about those two things: working on serving our community well, and and keeping our culture um, strong. Those were the two things that I would spend the most time thinking about. And I've got to say, at Facebook, I spent more time on people and culture than I did for any other job I've ever done, which seems ironic when you work for a, a tech company. You'd think you spend a lot of time on tech, and Facebook does. But Facebook realizes the avenue to tech innovation and disruption is through people. And so people, is, people are, it's a very, uh, you know, touch, the touchy-feely pieces around culture and people and talent are really, really important at Facebook, and, and every leader spends a lot of time on it. I'm going to change, change direction just slightly. You've, you, you've talked a little bit about privacy issues that Facebook have been facing. Talked, I mean, obviously, we've all heard a lot about fake news. We've all heard a lot of words being Which was a phrase around. I'd never heard, like two, heard of two years ago. I exactly. Guess. I don't think any, any of us had. <laughs> but I don't, I don't want to go too far into I don't want to go too far into that because there's a lot. I mean, I was just walking down, literally walking down my road a couple of days ago, and there's a, at a bus stop, there's a... Um, Facebook ad. Well, there's a giant poster from yeah. Facebook saying, yeah. just so you know, we've deleted millions of, a, of fake accounts. Yeah, that's we, a new campaign. I yeah, think they've just, uh, which, which mm. blew my mind. And it shows, you know, the reach mm. and the severity with which this is being treated. But there's plenty to be read and, and there's been plenty of talk about all yeah. this. I don't want to go too far into that. What I wanted to talk about, which is a, a particular interest of mine, is this phrase that isn't being talked about a lot, but has been mentioned, the echo chamber of me. And... To give you an example of, of what I believe it to be, and you might believe it to be something different, after after the Trump presidential election and, and after the win and after he came into presidency... You sort of whispered the Trump uh, election. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He's president. I know. did. Yeah, that's a different... That's, that's a whole other episode. So policies aside, the the feeling that I had, other than, you know, the general feelings, was a profound sense of disappointment in myself and that profound sense of disappointment came from the fact that I would like to consider myself to be a curious human being yeah I would like to consider myself to be a well-informed human being I would like to consider myself informed enough to know that a variety of different media channels are required if you're going to have a balanced point mm. of view now I was sideswiped you know, every single thing that I read on all the channels that I go to reinforced my worldview, reinforced my point of view, reinforced the outcome that I thought was inevitable. And that did not turn out to be true. And then suddenly I hear about this thing called the echo chamber of me, where there are algorithms in the background making sure that you are fed information, stories, content that reinforces everything you already believe. Mm. Now, that's terrifying to me. Mm. Because that means, well, first it means that the the opportunity or the chance to ever change your mind is getting smaller and smaller. And, and you know, what I believe the world needs is people who have the capacity to change their minds. The other thing that is terrifying about that is it means that our entire worldviews, everything that influences every decision we make from purchasing decisions to voting decisions, is now dictated to a very large degree by 
an algorithm that one person or a group of people own and can change at any point in time. So where I'm where I'm going with all of this is how do you how do you see that playing out? Firstly, how do you see it playing out? I'm interested in your perspective. Mm. But secondly, mm. is there a way that a curious human being can avoid the echo chamber of me? Big question. It was a long question. And I'll try, to, uh, I'll try to be concise. Um, and when I worked at Facebook, I, uh, I was more um, restricted on what I could say. And uh, as naturally, now I can, I can kind of speak my mind a little more freely. Uh, but let me, let me just see if I can say a few things that might help kind of uh, progress this, this issue. So first is this. Um, we have always lived in echo, echo chambers. Like our, our minds are pattern recognition machines. We have, uh, you know, we have biases that we like to have reinforced. I mean, these are well-documented psychological behaviors that the brain defaults to, right? So m- my understanding of how the brain works is, you know, you, you, we're not these big open, hey, I want to hear of diversity of views. It's like, no, your brain basically wants to be reinforced, I, I I give you an example just from uh, I can remember this when I was much younger. I remember there was a I was in university. I remember somebody describing to me a friend of mine. He was describing somebody else and their taste in music, and he was going through. You know, you know they like this band. They like that band. It's like they like back then. It's like they've got really great taste in music. And I just said that's because their taste is exactly like yours. <laughs> and he said, Yeah, that's right. This is exactly mine. And so we have this you know we have this bias towards like if people are like us, we tend to like them more. If they think like us, we like them more. Um, that is just the way the brain works. Okay. So that's one thing. Second thing is um, we now are overlaying on that um, ways that media work that's different than we've had media work for a while. But we need to recognize that media has always had its own biasy echo chambers. You know, say go back to the world before um, digital and social media. How many newspapers did you read? One, maybe two. I, what I'm actually thinking at this point is I used to read whatever newspapers my parents bought. And then I think after I left home, which was, I left home at about 16, I genuinely do not think I have read, I have purchased a newspaper. Okay. I mean, I, back in the days, you would watch, uh, basically you'd, you'd read one or two newspapers, max. You would watch one six o'clock news program every night, usually the same one. Right, you didn't flick around channels to see what other channels are saying. The truth is, they're all saying the same thing anyway, um, and that was your news diet, right? And we all got the same diet, everybody. And so I I don't remember in those days a lot of people saying, "Hey, we live in echo chambers," but we were self-selecting in echo chambers for a long time, right? So that has always existed. Now you get the Facebook and digital effect coming in over the top, and yes, the you know, newspapers and, and the traditional media channels are, are lessening in their influence over this world. And part of what you're hearing, I too believe, is the kind of is the is the kind of complaints of the of of, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know they are these are, these are self-interested um, journalists are self-interested. We all are. they don't like the fact that they are no longer the only source of information, um, and it. I think it's difficult for many of them to come to grips with this. And it's true. You don't need to turn to the New York Times to get your news anymore. You can go to thousands of free sources of news. And I, I understand that not all of it is journalistically, uh, you know, as rigorous as what the New York Times or the Sydney Morning Herald or others would produce. But uh, but in a way, 
you know, to come back to business, it's like, well, it's what people will pay for. If nobody buys your product, you don't have a business, no matter how good you think your product is. And so it's easy to blame uh, consumers or blame Facebook, but the reality is if journalism and, and was really good, people would pay for it, and they don't. Now, this is changing. People are paying a bit more for journalism now because of some of the uh, quality that's happening. But, you know, you can't blame consumers for making choices. And I think a lot of and, – and media is produces a product that it tries to sell. And, and I think a lot of it is around what they're trying to blame consumers for making choices that consumers can make. So I don't like blaming consumers for making choices. But then the final thing I'd say is this, which is um, there is a there's something that gets lost in this whole debate – that I haven't heard one politician stand up and say, but needs to be said, which is it's the job of democracies and government to educate, um, educates its population to be uh, active um, civic participants in, in civic life, right? That is the job of education. It's essentially to make, uh, to make people that can participate in life and participate in being in a democracy. I think we fail in this country and other countries creating these citizens today. I don't think we do create people with enough critical thinking. I think we don't create enough, uh, enough quality of thinking in these individuals that we, we're bringing up through, universe, through, uh, through schools and university. And there's a responsibility of government to educate people so that they can be, they can be um, full participants in democracy. And part of being a full participant in democracy is having a rational and open mind about different points of view. We're not good at doing that. So part of the responsibility comes back onto governments. And when I say government, it's ourselves as citizens to be able to say to our, our leaders, hey, we need to do a better job at educating people. So those are the kind of general comments I'd make. Where, where all this is going to go, um, I think we're going through a process now. I, I, I liken it to the early days of the Industrial Revolution when, or you, even before the Industrial Revolution, when we didn't have a sense of property rights. It's, it's well known today that you own something and I own something and that's my house and that's, you know, that's your phone, that's your computer. There was a time when that wasn't so clear cut. We actually didn't have contracts. We didn't have the idea of you own this, I own that, that's your property, there's the line between our properties, right? And we can all think of examples of this over time. There's a recent one just a few kilometers from where we're sitting today down at where the Harbor Bridge is here in Sydney. When they built that bridge in the 20s and 30s, they had to build the off-ramp into the city through one of the oldest sections of, of, of Australia, which was called the Rocks. And there were houses in the Rocks that had been there for 100, 150 years that people had been living in for generations. Some of those people had no deed to the house that they lived in. They had no paperwork. They had nothing. They got a knock on the door that said, show us the evidence you live here. They had no evidence. Their houses were knocked down. They got no compensation. And so even that was just in the 20s, right? That was less than 100 years ago. We had no conception of property right. So today, we're kind of living in the same era around digital identity and data. And I'll give you an analogy. If, if you have a toaster in your house and you left, say you left the back door open and somebody walked in your house and left with the toaster. If I asked 100 people randomly here in the streets of Sydney, is that a crime? I would say almost 100 people would say, yes, that's a crime. You can't walk into somebody's house and take their toaster. It's a low-value item. You left the door open, but it's still a crime. We have a community understanding that that's the wrong thing to do. If I give you the equivalent scenario from a digital and data pers perspective, let's say you're driving your car down the street. 
a camera takes your picture. And through, through image recognition technology, it knows who you are. Who owns that, that image? And who has the rights to use that image? If I take 100 people in the street and ask them the same question, I will not get 100 people giving me the same answer. Some will say, oh, it's mine. Some will say it's the person who took the photo. Some will say it could be a third party. Don't know. And so this is my equivalent. We know where we're at with the toaster, but we don't know where we're at with the photograph taken down the street. That's the process we're going through over the next few years. It took decades for this to get sorted out in the pre-industrial revolution era around property. It's going to take us years to figure this out now. And, and therefore, I actually think the debates we're having now are great because it's created this consciousness amongst everyone about, hey, we don't really understand this and we don't have a common community standard about this. It's not just about regulation or what the government says or, or what Facebook says. It's about what people want and what people collectively as a community say, yeah, that's right or that's wrong. That's where I draw the line. I want to talk about the the internet of things or more specifically the internet of the home i have this feeling philosophy idea that whoever ends up owning the infrastructure of the home the internet of the home is probably going to be the dominant force over the coming decades and that links into what you've been saying around voice technology because if you're in your home and you say alexa pay my utility bill, Alexa, check the fridge, do we have any milk, Alexa, mm. um, what's the latest fashion to come out of, I don't know, London Fashion Week. If you're doing all of, the, all of those things within your home using voice technology, then whoever owns that infrastructure probably ends up owning all those utilities, all those links, a percentage out of all those sales. So with that, with voice technology, how quickly do you see that going? How predominant a force do you see that being for business? And who do you think will end up owning owning that infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, you, you raise a good question, which is, you know, who owns what, who controls what? And arguably, let's look, let's look at the internet, you know, um, who owns the, you know, the, the wiring that controls the internet? Well, it's telcos. And are telcos the ones that are controlling the future of the internet? Not really. Um, you know, Apple makes iPhones and sells billions of those, but does Apple really control the, you know, this Apple? did Apple create Facebook and put that on the phone? No, it's Facebook did that. So there's all these who owns what and who captures the value uh, often is hard to figure out as things play out over time. Apple's very happy with the business they built, but they, you know, they didn't build Facebook along the way. Um, so for the future for the Internet of Things, I think there's a couple things that are going to be interesting. One is I think it's going to take, in, in terms of the home, it's going to take a while for the home to get um, wired, right? And the problem there is you just have uh, the inertia of a lot of established uh, infrastructure, right? So your house and my house are already built. And the truth is probably to, to fully take advantage of the new technologies in the Internet of Things in, in residential housing, it's going to require... Either you renovate your house or you buy a new house that's built, you know, with, from 2018 or, or, or onward. My house was built in 1935, and, you know, we've, we're going to renovate it, and probably then we'll kind of, uh, you know, we'll Internet of Things it a lot more. So it's going to take a while for that to happen. Not every house is suddenly going to become smart and every device. So that, that's going to slow things down a little bit. Uh, but that said, um, you know, who, who controls what? And I think one of the key control points that's probably very important is, this, is the interface with the consumer, right? It's, the, it's, it's where the consumer is actually 
revealing preferences to a uh, another provider. And so who, whoever controls that, that's, that's powerful. And you see that in search today. Google controls that uh, with search, so that's very powerful. Facebook does it in social media. Amazon increasingly is doing it in shopping online. And not only controlling it, but being able to capture and make sense of the data and then curate the experience for that user in a way that adds more value for them. And currency, currently that would be you know, Amazon's Alexa, Google Home. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, Apple's Siri arguably is probably the third horse in that race today. There's a few others. Microsoft has Cortana. Uh, Samsung has a device. But you could probably argue that it'll be, it'll be two or three of Apple, uh, Google, and um, Amazon that win you know, in every developed market around the world. The whole China side. China, I think, is a different game. Um, but uh, you do also have to ask the question, is it only going to be uh, you know, the, the AI voice assistant that's in that device that's going to be what's interfacing with you? So, for example, you know, is there a further overlay, and this, this is already starting to happen, where you actually you don't go to their voice assistant. You actually bring your own AI with you. So... Just go to go with me for a minute. We're all assuming that the AI is going to be owned by somebody else. What if we all owned our own AI? And we just had our AI then plug in over the top of Alexa. So, for example, I wouldn't just rely on Alexa to um, figure out what my preferences are and tell me what product I should have. I actually bring my own AI that already knows my preferences and actually handles the interface with Alexa. So it plugs in over the top. So think about it as an app that sits on your phone. The app is not part of your phone. It plugs into your phone and brings extra uh, functionality. Well, this would be an app that plugs into the top of Alexa. My eyes have just got like about twice as wide. <laughs> I but had not it, considered and, that. And it would, and so I think we are we will eventually wind up in a world where we have we all have our own individual AI avatars or bots or whatever you want to call them or apps that essentially we plug into a whole range of services. But this AI works for me. It doesn't work for you. It doesn't work for any other company. It works for me. And right now, we don't have that. We don't have an AI that works for me. Now, this is a business opportunity, of course, for the business can help build that platform that builds the AI of me. Um, we, I don't think we're there yet. I think it'll take some time to get there. But that, that will be a battle that goes on um, at some point as well. So uh, I Personally, I'm looking forward to this future because I would love to have a world where my analogy is always this. Like you say, you know, if, if you're Kim Kardashian, right, and you say, and Kim Kardashian says, I want to go on a holiday. I need a break. Does she go on to TripAdvisor and, you know, and WebJet? And, no. Well, you know what she does? She turns to her assistant and says, I need a holiday. And her assistant says, I'll take care of everything. And Kim doesn't know anything. All she does is she wakes up in the morning. Her bags are packed. She's taken to the airport. She flies off to somewhere. And she's, she go, and she's taken to a resort that her assistant knows is exactly the room she wants. It faces in the right direction. The flowers are the, exactly the flowers she wants. You know, it's got the plunge pool that she loves because her assistant knows everything that she wants. That's the world that we are all going to head towards. And I can't wait till we get there. Make my life so easy. Your, your face just lit up just talking <laughs> about that. But I, I want to kind of bring us to a close now. You had said that craving for mobile phones is now akin to food, companionship, or love. Now, I didn't when I when I heard that, I, I didn't know whether to be disturbed or excited. 
by that idea because you know on the one hand I think it's exciting that any child of mine or any friend or any colleague of mine is able to sit in a room and collaborate with people all across the world. I think that that has profound implications for prejudice. I think it has profound implications for the choices that we make and how we treat the rest of the world and our sense of connectivity. So that's exciting. The other part that's disturbing is um, obvious questions around identity, what we compare ourselves to, our sense of self, and whether that's diminished by constant phone interaction. All massive questions, and I'm not going to put all of those to you. But what I was curious about was, having had the experiences that you've had, and having had the peak behind the curtain, the incredible peak behind the curtain that you have had, but actually been part of building the curtain. Building the curtain. Building the curtain. <laughs> How has that changed your perception on this? Hmm. Is it? Do you, do you feel excitement, uh, or do you feel disturbance, or a combination of the two? Yeah, it's a little bit of a combination, to be honest with you. Um, I think when I was at Facebook, I was more on the the side of the camp that was all optimism. Um, I think I'm more, and I don't think this isn't just because I've left Facebook. It's 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 because of the scale that I think uh, platforms like Facebook have gotten to, and the power that they hold over um, the world in some ways, and the power in inverted commas. In some ways, I think Facebook's very powerful. In some ways, I think it has no power at all. It depends on your definition of power. Um, but there's, there's, there's just a lot that's happened in the past few years that make me think a little differently about it. I, when I was in university, I, was, I studied history. And I, I often, uh, I'm fascinated by history. I always have been. And I, I, I read history all the time. And so I think it's always important to keep things in perspective and sometimes look back and start to say, you know, is this the first time something like this has the happened? The arc of history. Yeah, and it often it's not the first time something like this has happened. There's all been other uh, periods of alarm in society around uh, technology or media and or distraction. And so we've, I mean, I can remember my own life. It seems trivial now, but uh, it was a big issue. I, I remember Saturday morning cartoons were well I grew up in the States. Saturday morning cartoons, I remember I think it was even like President Nixon or something, you know, came out and was like, you know, this is, you know, rotting the youth of America. We need to do something about it. And we'd get up every morning and we'd watch cartoons all morning on Saturday and my parents would be pulling their hair out, you know, trying to get us away from cartoons. And the cartoons were too violent and there were too many sugary breakfast cereals being advertised around the cartoon. It was a big national crisis in America. Um you know, and we've survived that crisis. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying people didn't uh, do things to, you know, help uh, deal with it. It didn't. We just don't let things happen. But um, you know, society and individuals are very resilient. We're resilient, resourceful people, and we're super smart. We use two percent of our brains. You know, there's just so much more to be done there. Um, when I get to the specifics of social media and 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 some of the issues you've raised. We're we're going to collectively learn about all this. You know, we we will learn about uh, how to manage our time and how to manage our attention in a world that uh, constantly, not just in the past few years, but has, over the past hundred years, has has had more challenges to our attention, and our time than ever before. Um, we time and again, we've had new technologies, new things that have disrupted our world that. At the time, there have been people who have been, and, and people very affected by it. It's not to trivialize. You know, some people have 
at different disruptions, people did lose their jobs. People, their livelihoods were, did go away because the disruption was fast enough that no longer you know, was their particular skill valued. And, and we need to help people adjust in those worlds. Uh, but um, I think we're more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. And the, some of the, the benefits of these platforms, uh, not just digital platforms, but benefits of things like television and radio and mass communications, I, I think vastly outweigh the negative effects they've had over the, you know, since they've been invented. And the, some of the things that you mentioned, you know, uh, opening people's eyes to the rest of the world, reducing, in some ways, reducing prejudice, spreading uh, new ideas or education. Those are very positive effects. And so I think ultimately social media will have and has had a lot of positive effects. And right now we're just trying to make sure that, you know, that we're dealing with some of the, the downsides of it. But I'm generally pretty optimistic. My pessimism comes in when we don't, as a society, keep up with uh, some of our, our institutions don't keep up with how things are changing. And I think the institution of democracy right now is not necessarily keeping up with how the world of information and, and the world of being a citizen has changed. I mentioned before, we, I don't think we educate people well enough to be good citizens. I think that's one challenge. I think the other challenge is just how, is how government works, is how we make decisions in a democratic society. You know, we elect people through a certain process that go and sit in a parliament or a congress that that make decisions in a certain process and then we we all kind of do or don't have a role or a voice in that process all of that to me could use a big retooling and um, I don't know if we'll ever get to that retooling because it's very hard to change these things but um, that is going to be continually challenged by technology uh, and technology doesn't stop at borders it doesn't stop at uh at traditions, right? It breaks these things down. So we, we're going to feel this friction for a while, but I'm hopeful that um, just through talking about it and through uh, thinking about it, we're going to all come to a better, you know, community level understanding about what's what's the way forward. I'm no, um, I have my own little small children, and I'm no advocate for you know, let's spend you know, spend all your time on social media or online. I. I, it's one of the ironies of Facebook. I did a TED Talk recently, and I talked about this. It's personal interaction. I realized that Facebook is more important than anything, just being with people. And that's to me, that's never going to go away. Virtual reality doesn't matter. Still, being face-to-face -face with somebody in the physical world, is, it's, it's going to take a long time to replicate that. And there's so much power to that, so we should never lose sight of it. At the end of this interview, the question that I had in my head that I was going to ask you was... If I could give you a stage and put in front of you, you know, every single business owner, CEO that you would want to talk to and what's the one thing that you would want them to know, but I'm actually going to change it and I'm, I'm going to, what's your daughter's name? Maya. Maya. What's the one thing that you would want Maya to know going into a completely digitized world? What's the one thing you'd want her to bear in mind? Uh, the, in the, the one thing I wanted to know is, uh, That's a very good question. Um, sort of an emotional question, too. I'm just really thinking hard about this. I have a saying 
that I've used a long time, and I think it applies to the digital world as well, which is you can't control what other people think, say, and do. You can only control what you think, say, and do. And so my advice to anyone often when they're going through a hard time based on what somebody else did or said is just focus on yourself. If you can live your life with integrity and with caring and with love, that's the life, that's the only life you need to worry about. That's the only thing that you have to worry about controlling um, because controlling others is beyond your control. So don't worry about it. And I think the same applies to digital social media. Just always remember that, you know, it's, you are in control of one thing that's yourself and that's what you should focus on and, fo and focus on doing it with integrity. And if, I think if you take that philosophy, a lot of the other stuff just becomes noise and, 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 and issues that you easily, easily overcome. Thank you so much for the time today. It's just disappeared for me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Having you on. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. 
And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.